You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. This is where we look past the manufactured memes and artificial antagonisms and instead embrace the common collective courage required to forge a truly civil society. The Conspiracy is just a TV show and it's time to change the channel. I'm Douglas Rushkoff and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, futurist, inventor, and the author of Augmented Reality, my friend Mark Pesci. Because of the way my magical education was delivered, the boundary between what constituted the created space of virtual reality and the created space of the magical world was like, ah, okay, yeah, they're kind of the same thing, kids. Mark will be augmenting our understanding of the many interfaces between ourselves and whatever it is that's out there. No, you're not tripping. You're on Team Human. Life on the screen is soon coming off the screen to a reality near you. My good friend Mark Pesci, he knows a whole lot about alternate realities and wrote a very compelling account of the past and future possibilities for augmented reality in a book of that name, as well as just what this means for the future of being human. Hi, Mark. Hi, Doug. How are you? <laughs> Good. It's been a while. It has been and, too long. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when we live on opposite sides of the world. But um, it's no excuse. Uh, opposite sides of the world. And we've also experienced about 10,000 years of linear time in the past 10 months. So there's that oh as well. Oh, God. I know. It certainly feels that way. Yeah. But um, And in that 10,000 10, years, you published a new book, mm. Augmented Reality, which I'm really happy about. Just in case, because we have all sorts of people listening to this show. Mm. Um, I loved when you first described virtual reality in here. And it was something, and I'm going to use it for all my students and everybody in the future, that you were describing some of the earliest virtual reality. And I always think of early virtual reality as like, you know, movies like Lawnmower Man or or uh, Warren Robinette putting, you know, headsets on people to fix mm. airplanes and stuff. And you talked about it as um, like Windows, you know, <laughs> the, the graphical user interface as, as the first VR. And that was, that was kind of, <laughs> that was really novel. I mean, I, I think part of what I wanted to do a lot of times, and I, I feel as though this is part of the framing that's used to push a technology onto people, is that it seems like it's descended from the heavens, that it has no antecedents, that there's no historical continuity here, right? And instead, what I want to do is go, actually, no, all of these things are like all of these other things. Here's maybe where it's a little bit different, but here is where it sits in the grand tradition of all of the stuff that we've been doing since Ivan Sutherland touched a light pen. And this is the thing. It's really pointing all the way back to Sketchpad, which is the very first interactive app from 1963. So almost as old as I am. And there's a straight line between touching that light pen to the display and drawing things to everything that we get in virtual reality and everything we get in augmented reality. And of course, Ivan Sutherland invented both of those. He invented the interactive application with Sketchpad and then went on to invent AR and VR with something called the Sword of Damocles. Right. But I love that, too, because because what you're doing by doing that and you're not being some crazy old historian or whatever, but you're kind of being the opposite of the way 
most of the kind of tech dudes I talk to today are, where they treat every tiny iteration that they might, some incremental change they may have come up with or some new wording for something as if they've like reinvented gold or something, you know, like they're, like they're, everything has to be novel and new as if they're, the value of something is its newness and novelty rather than its connection to a lineage, to, to, to a history. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think, I feel as though that's, it's marketing. And the question is whether that's marketing being faced out into the world or it's marketing for the venture capitalists and for the, the people who are being sort of worked 18 hours a day by the founders and all of that. It feels as though that kind of excitement is extractive rather than celebratory. Right. And it's, and it's er erasing rather than additive, mm. you know? Exactly. I would so much rather feel like, oh, I'm improving on, you know, Buckminster Fuller's dome here. Not, you know, you know what I mean? That I'm part of something. That was the whole, you know, the whole rabbinic tradition was that, well, as Rabbi Eliezer said to Shmuley, said to this, you know, exactly. but I'm thinking a little more, a little bit to the left, you know, or whatever, you know. Yeah. And, and, and it feels... Because as AR arrives more and more, and as you get the the, the glasses that that Zuckerberg will give us, and probably Tim Cook will give us over the next couple of years, it's going to feel like it's and it's going to be built like it's this entirely new thing, and da 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 da. It's the big new thing. It'll replace the smartphone, all of that, and some of that is possibly true, but all of it sort of takes it out of context of this is really just the next step in a tradition of how we make the interface or bring the interface ever closer to our skin, right? It's that. Right. So it's no longer out there. It's no longer at the end of your arm or out there in the world with a button you press or keys that you type or a mouse that you move, but it's literally just on your head all of the time and your gaze is being tracked and your position and your location and the world is being scanned around you in order to create this very richly detailed representation. Right. And the difference really between, you know, VR and AR is, you know, VR kind of replaces your reality and AR is more like a, an overlay of some kind. And I feel as though, you know, people are starting to go, well, we've had really good VR since for about five years now, since about 2016. Why hasn't it taken off? We did everything right. What happened? And it's because when push comes to shove, most people do not want to be taken out of the world. <laughs> All right. It's too big an ask for most of the people, most of the time. Some people will do it for a short while for gaming. Some people will do it for certain kinds of industrial or training tasks. But in general, not nah, sorry. Like the world, going to stay, particularly because this is where all the people are. The persistent problem in virtual reality after 30 years is you still can't get two people in it. I mean, you can maybe get right. one person in if you stick their head in, but you can't even get two people in. Well, I mean, one person, you, you read a book alone. Mm. I mean, but I can read a book and be in a room and still cuddle with somebody while yes. I'm reading the book. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and that's the thing. So augmented reality adds to the world rather than taking you out of the world. And so the, the speed bump there for people is going to be so much lower. And the thing is, we already know this is the case because I opened the book with a story about when Pokemon Go was released in 2016, right? right? And in Australia, where I live, in Australia, Pokemon Go was released about 48 hours before everywhere else in the world because Niantic, the company that makes it, was basically taking the servers out for a drive, make sure they could handle the traffic. And it was literally like a mind bomb got dropped all across Australia. And I was 
running around Sydney with a friend who was visiting from America. It was her first trip. So I was taking her to see the sights. We were over at the opera house doing this and that. We saw these, these groups of young people sort of in their early 20s who were all sort of crowded together around their phones. And we, we did go up and keep on asking, what are you doing? Oh, we're playing Pokemon Go. We're playing Pokemon Go. We're playing Pokemon Go. So there was like a spell <laughs> that had been cast. And two days after that, so on the Tuesday night, there's a public park and it is a little postage stamp sized public park, which is basically a place to walk the dog and get the kids on the swing set. And it's surrounded by office towers, uh, not office towers, uh, apartment towers. It's mm. in a suburb called Rhodes, about 10, 15 Ks outside of downtown. It is right next to a train station. So super easy to get to. So this is Peg Patterson Park at 11 p.m. on Tuesday night in the middle of July, which is winter here. So it's going to be cold, right? There were... 800 people at that park all playing Pokemon Go because Niantic had a map of this park from an earlier version of a game called Ingress, which was their first augmented reality game. And because they knew about the park, they were able to put a Poke Gym and a Poke Stop in the park. <laughs> yeah. And the first players who came to the park found out and they messaged some friends who messaged some friends who messaged. Some, and all of a sudden, the police have to come because no one in these apartment blocks can get any sleep because it's a Tuesday night at 11 p.m. And there's 800 kids who are having a great time, but shouldn't really be there then. Right. Well, that's the thing with with even pre-AR, although you could say some of these map programs are like AR, you yeah. know, you could have a Waze, you know, Waze can decide that, oh, there's a block over there, we're going to send everybody this way. And all of a sudden, some little street in the middle yes. of nowhere yeah. has all the Waze traffic coming yeah. through it. And, and, this is, and this is the sort of the first bottom line statement of my book, which is that when you change space, when you write something into space, so when Waze says, come here, or Niantic says, poke a stop there, you change our behavior in space, right? And this is the thing. We're going to start doing this lots because that technology is now going to be out there at scale. And so we now have to think about what it means to be able to willy-nilly write on space with messages that will other people will see and will shape their behavior in that space. Right. I mean, and this is this is real. It's it's at just a different level. I mean, this is what, you know, Jacques Ellul, I, I teach propaganda at, at college, you know, and Jacques Ellul talked about how the, the real propaganda feeds back into reality because yes. you change the way people think, then you change their behavior, and then they change the world. Yes. But this is literal. This is <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this it's, is mechanical. You know, so typical for technology to take something that's figurative and then to make it completely literal, right? That's the thing. Exactly. That's just... <laughs> what that's what it keeps doing. I mean, yeah. I, I keep thinking about, you know, when, when I was reading your book and thinking about AR, I kept thinking about, I forgot what it was called. Like, like what was his name? Like Tinky Winky or Tiddly Widdly? There was this rabbit character on TV when I was a kid in the 60s. And you would get this plastic thing and put it over the TV screen. And then you draw with like a wax crayon, like he'd be stuck in a building and they would say, oh, put your magic screen on. And you would draw a line for him to like walk a tightrope to get out of, to get out <laughs> of danger. Yep. And we, we would all do that. And it was like, but now it's like, oh, wow. We we we're really we're really starting to play with that in the world, but it it feels to me not coincidental that we're also in a moment. And nothing against any QAnon Great Awakening listener today, but we're living in a world where these uh, fantasy role playing games and mm. and live action role playing games mm. that used to use the universe 
of like Tolkien or Dungeons and Dragons or Vampire the Masquerade. They would use a fictional universe and we would act out things. We, we would create drama from pieces of those fictions. Now, LARPs like QAnon are using nonfiction reality as its source material. And we are acting them out now in the real world as if they're real because it's almost because we're using the substance, you know, the 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 content of of reality TV, and it feels to me like that's a form of AR. I have to admit, no one's described QAnon to me as a lark before, Douglas, and that's just that your particular <laughs> it's your particular brilliance because I believe you've hit the nail right on the head because we have an entire internet that's filled with information that will feed into your own particular predilections of how you think the universe is shaped. And so the internet itself becomes the perfect mirror for your role playing. And so we use all of that. And the thing that's con both confronting and promising at the same time about augmented reality is that it allows us to bring together this enormous world of human information that we have spent 30 years bringing into cyberspace, right? This 30 year process. And we we haven't got all of it in there, but we've got a lot of human knowledge now in the no space of cyberspace. And whether that's yeah. truth or lies or fact or fiction, doesn't matter. It's in there. But we have – it has no connection to the physical world yet, right? There's a couple of points where it kind of a little bit bubbles up, maybe a Google map. But Google Maps really about what Google wants you to see. It's not about what's actually there. <laughs> and right, Who pays? <laughs> who pays to show up on Google Maps? Wait exactly. a minute. My restaurant's not on there. It's because you don't advertise with Google. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's a, that. So that's very much Google's view of the world, as opposed to the world, and and so we're going to be marrying this, and so all of this stuff, crazy or not, all of this stuff is going to start to get stuck in space, applied to space, right? And you know, the analogy I've been using lately is you you, you go through. Let's say if you were walking down, say Broadway in Lower Manhattan. All right. Where there are a lot of older buildings, you will see plaques in front of those buildings that will tell you when the building was built, maybe who put the plaque there, all of these things. And so that's the way we used to apply this data, this metadata to space, this locative metadata. Now we're basically going to do the piling of all of the data that is in the human web. And that's all going to get applied where appropriate and probably where not appropriate to physical right. space. Well, someone's got to fund it, and the people that are going to fund it are the people that are going to make money off it. So I somehow I can't imagine walking through New York and having you know the historical or social information take precedence over the commercial information. And this comes to a really interesting point, which is sort of the point that I, I kind of leave the reader with at the end of the book, which is when you're talking about putting information in space, you don't just kind of have a right to do that willy-nilly. If this is a building, for example, the Great Synagogue, which is on George Street in Sydney, or pardon me, Elizabeth Street in Sydney, 150 years old. And would you want someone putting a McDonald's advertisement on the front of that, or God forbid, something advertising some bacon? I mean, it's there are so many ways that that needs to be very carefully thought through and policed, that there's a property right there that belongs to space, that if we don't acknowledge it is going to lead to all sorts of trouble very quickly. And all of the tech giants are basically acting like, oh, well, all space, we can just write anything we want. It's just, it's just virtual. I'm like, 
Not so fast. Yeah, but that's why I'm asking the question, because you, you say to ask it, you say it toward the end of the book, steering clear of the dystopian potential of augmented reality, a world where the technology turns humanity into managed dumb terminals mm. whose agency has been thwarted through profiling and engagement requires both critical engagement with the medium as it emerges and a willingness to undermine and expose its operations. Asking who profits in an era of global scale network technology requires an understanding of the systemic nature of augmented reality systems. And that's why I'm asking who profits right now, I'm right scared. now. Right now, it's Niantic is making a billion dollars a year. Niantic and Nintendo are making a billion dollars a year off of Pokemon Go, right? And that doesn't feel so bad compared to, you know, Google and Facebook making a trillion dollars yeah. off augmented marketing and mind control. Which clearly is where this is going, right? But the thing is, is that what we can do is we can take a look at all the questions that are being asked at that billion dollar level because Niantic has been sued by a community in Wisconsin, another community in Los Angeles, because the polka stops produce these, you know, these these gatherings, these inappropriate gatherings or riots, whatever you want to call it. But they produce these yeah. inappropriate gatherings. Oh, yeah. And they were sticking like, you know, like a Pokemon would end up in your private yard and kids jumping over your fence to get it. And it's like, wait a minute. I didn't say you could no. put a Pokemon in there. Exactly. And the thing is, is that those cases have been, they've been brought to court. They've always been settled before there was a court ruling because Niantic is trying to stop any case law being created. Because oh, they'd rather give you, give the guy a million bucks and he'll shut up. Yeah. Well, because in fact, the, the thing is, is that making case law on this is everyone thinks, oh, that sounds really complicated. No, this is property law and property law. We need to be honest here. It's the foundation of English law. In other words, it's the foundation of the law in America, in Canada, in the UK, in Australia. It's the foundation of English law, not, not murder and criminal law. I mean, yeah, the Romans had that too, but right. property law. Right. But property law, yeah, is, is, I mean, and we say we like it because we don't want someone jumping over our fence to get yeah. Pokemon, but property law was the enclosure of the commons. Property law is what protects the old rich. Yes. Property law may be the very problem that, and I hate to be on this side, that AR could break. <laughs> well, I guess the question is, do you want it broken by Mark Zuckerberg? Because <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me no. like you substituted a, a slightly more want, distributed problem for no. a slightly more centralized one at that no, point. I want, I want AOC to break it, not Mark Zuckerberg. AOC and Naomi Klein and good people. And, yeah. and this is where we start to now have a whole other conversation. So one of the things that Australia is now doing and has done since I got here, right, but it is a big thing now. And it's, it's even starting to happen a little bit in America. Whenever you give a public talk anywhere in Australia, you always open with an acknowledgement of country, unless you have someone who's got an indigenous background, in which case they give you a proper welcome to country, often in language. All right. Mm. But I will always say hi. I'd like to acknowledge that we're on this morning. We're meeting on the lands of the Gadigal Nation of the Yora people. Um, and I pay respect to my elders past, present and emerging. And you can actually add some other things around that. But what it does is it situates you in big time. Right. Not just the 1788 English time, but the time right. for the 30 or 40,000 years before that. 
And that means that all of the property in Sydney and all of the stories that can be told in Sydney aren't just the story, in fact, of the congregation at the Great Synagogue, who clearly have a right to say what goes on that building, but also that the Gadigal, who still are around, probably also have a word or two, and they probably also have some value there. And this is that argument. I think this is how that argument you're making actually looks, which is that the multiplicity of voices for a space can have room to speak. So you wearing your in your appropriately programmed VR or AR system, you walk to a place, you know, I, I, I go into an auditorium and I got my glasses on and I'm like, oh, wow, who was here before me? You know, OK, so they did Pippin last year, Sweet Charity 30 years ago, and then the Algonquin Nation lived <laughs> exactly. here before that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. In, into long time. And, 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 and the thing is, of course, the Algonquin nation were a conquering nation from other tribes that were there before. And, and so there's, right. there's all of that long history as well. Right. You're back to the, back to the Talmud. Rabbi Ishmael yeah. before yeah. him, Rabbi Aliziah. Yeah. yeah. So some of that is we have the potential to recover the ability to see some long time that we don't see now. Mm. You know, again, you come back to that litany of, oh, this is new. This is exciting. Da, 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 da. Da, da, right. And this is kind of the counterspell to that. That long time is the counterspell to this. It's new. It's exciting. And don't think about it. Just put it on. <laughs> right. Well, that's really interesting because this is something I'm, I'm, I'm working on right now. What I've been musing on is whether it's very Siberia era thought, our oh, early yeah. kind of stuff when we were talking. But does cybernetics break this linear time is an arrow Western colonial expansion thing? Does cybernetics, because it's circular, does it finally feed back? Does it force the retrieval of all the stuff that these kind of white Western tech bro expansionist colonialists thought they were running away from by going West? It's like, oh no, you finally <laughs> invented something that goes so fast, it's circular, yeah. you know, and it's all coming back. Uh, the answer is yes, but the other answer is that uh, the mythology, that that Western progressive mythology was always just that, right? And so you always know, and I mean, what is McLuhan? As soon as you speed something up, it reverses, right? If you speed right. something up enough, it reverses. So all of that is true. They've gone West so far, they're, they're in the East, you know, which is kind of what I've done. I, I am now as far West as you can go or as far East as you can be. And Australia can never really make up its mind where it wants to sit on that scale because part of our history is 60,000 years old. Like this is this is the, the weird thing about Australia is that it exists in two simultaneous time planes. It is the oldest continuous culture on the planet by a lot. And it's also one of the newest, right? And so you kind of, so there's, and there's a tension around that and as well there should be as the new, which is quite powerful, contends with the old, which doesn't in some sense is powerless and yet, it's old, right? And so right. it's got it's got it's got a beingness of its own because of its age, and it's because the way that that culture told stories about itself in a dream time and in circularity and in recurrence, that it represents exactly that. What it makes me wonder, and this goes to other conversations we've had over time, is, you know, so now I look at the best and brightest of our West Coast mm, mm. going to Burning Man or even down to South America to do ancient shamanic <laughs> chemicals and yep. get their DMT vape pens. And 
they're ingesting the oldest of the old, at least yeah. so I would think. But, yeah. you know, the solutions they end up with then are like the friggin' Social Dilemma documentary. Yeah. It's like, well... You know, it's not like they're going to sell their stock or change their companies on a fundamental level. It's as if these chemicals generate a superficial return rather than fundamental. You know, they end up coming back and wanting to sign on to the Great Reset, you know, or, or Game B. So I'm not... One of the things that I've I've come to, and I, I feel as both of us are getting a little older now, we get a little bit more of a view that... For as much as people claim to embrace change, you know, and the, I heard a lot when I was a kid, change or die, change or die, you've got to change or you're going to die. But the paradox here is that changing is also death, right? Because you have to let go of the mindset of the profit or the extraction or the social dilemma or whatever it is. You cannot hold both simultaneously. And so you cannot change and die or you can change and die. And I feel as though most people just avoid that hard decision. They really do. And it's almost as though the opening that you can have with these substances is to embrace that moment of change, knowing that there is a release, that there is a price to be paid, and that pay, that price is a kind of death. It's not the physical, biological death, but it's a death of a of a worldview, the death of what of 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 your beliefs around something, whatever it is. But you can't. And I mean, it goes back to that old Zen saying, which is, you cannot pour tea into a filled cup. Right. I mean, it's like getting the death card in a tarot reading yeah. and you go, <laughs> but it's like, no, 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 no. You know, you don't get to move on unless you let something go, unless you molt the skin, you know? Yeah. yeah. And and we, that is, that is not part of our Western 21st century cultural mythology. It is, there's no, there, we we don't tell children that story. We grew up, and, and this is this is going to be true for you and I, Douglas, and when I have you on my show, we're going to talk about this. We kind of grew up believing we kind of weren't going to die, right? right? That that is a kind of thing that no one really talks about, but we just kind of had that kind of, oh, yeah, we're the first generation of cosmic immortals, blah, 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 right? And it reads differently now that we're both very close to 60, <laughs> right? It re but at the same time, you can sort of see that. And so if you never have to encounter death like that, and of course we do because we're encountering deaths of parents and things like that. But if you don't have to encounter death at that personal level, then you never get faced with the dilemmas of having to let go in order to change, in order to be able to, <laughs> to put it in modern parlance, level up. Right. It's almost as if all the sort of chaos math and new physics and quantum became this like excuse that, oh, it's like, oh, it's all fractal. It's not really going to happen. And it's like, <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. It is. <laughs> now, the arrow eventually hits the target no matter how far it goes with another half and another half and another half. The, the, arrow, the, the arrow hits the target. And Part of that culture that you're pointing at is a culture that does not accept that limits exist, right? Right. Their parents had Escher prints in their house, for God's sake, you know? The staircase just keeps going, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, so if you live in a, an un, an, a, a worldview that is unbounded, that doesn't have limits, you're not going to encounter limits well. <laughs> How about right. that, right? And this is, you know... 
that's part of the role of a good mentor. And I feel as though part of what you and I do in the world, particularly now, is we mentor so that when younger people start to intuit limits, we can help them make the best use of those limits because limits are, in fact, some of the most important things that can happen to you. You know, that, that, right. that you're not you're not all you're not the sum of your successes. You are the sum of your failures. <laughs> your successes don't leave a mark on you. Your failures do. But don't you ever feel I mean, and I've been feeling lately that the impact of this mentorship mm. has been giving important people more effective language to lie with. You know, I I listen to them in the social social oh, dilemma dear. and I'm like they're saying everything I wrote in like programmer be programmed yeah. in present shock but they don't really get it. Or I'm reading that what's his face from the 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 World Economic Forum Davos thing and his great reset. And it's like stakeholder capitalism and respecting <laughs> land labor and green this and money. I'm like, yeah, this is right from throwing rocks. This is exactly what I was saying. Yeah. But but it's somehow it's somehow been been stripped of any traction of any reality of uh, it's reading to you like it's a mask right like the behind it is literally the old boss same as the new (laughs) boss right literally literally that and so this is the thing because when it's when it's read with authenticity it's not a litany of words it's not a set of proposals it is actions that are actually breeding actions in the world, right? That that is the thing itself, is the doing of the thing is the articulation of the thing. And the thing is, your doing of the thing, and this this is true for you, Doug, you are the harbinger. You always get to say things first. It's good because in a couple of years later, I'll go along and go, oh, that's why Doug wrote a book about money a couple of years ago, which is where I am now because I'm all about digital right. cash and how that's going to get very right. weird, right? All right. But it's it's your, your doing is the articulating. And then the other people go, oh, this is a really good mask. And it's not your fault that they're using it as a mask, right? But you have to look to them for if you've really read this, then how has that changed that you're doing? Right? How has that right. changed what you do? It's this is not just sitting up in front of a room full of really powerful people and saying, "Oh, look, here's a here's a ten program plan for fixing the planet." It's it's not that fixing the planet is fixing no. the planet. It's not talking about fixing the planet. Right, and it requires on some level it requires soul work. Yeah, you know they have to change the action of their soul on reality. Yeah, and if they don't tweak that, then it doesn't really matter. <laughs> well, then they don't. So. Part of what I think you and I have talked about for a long time in different kinds of language is using technology to expand the space of human agency, right? Mm -hmm. To give people more choices rather than less. And the beautiful thing about the social dilemma is that stuff that you and I had been talking about for a generation was now on Netflix and being seen by hundreds of millions of people around how these tools were being used to deprive people of agency, Mm. So that gives people a lens. And I feel as though that's the question we're asking people to come from in their souls. Are you doing something that provides agency, right? And not just for rich white folks, because <laughs> we'll probably do all right, people. I'm sorry. But, yeah. for, but for everyone and for everyone else. And maybe, though, maybe, though, 
you know, this question of agency can finally be released, that the public can get that whole thing, because agency itself has been devalued. Now we see, you know, insects can have agency, AIs can have agency, anything can have agency. That's just, you know, a bias is agency. You're going to lean toward that. The real prize is something deeper than agency. You know what I mean? It's it's consciousness. It's awareness. It's love. It, yeah. Agency is a ledge. It's a, we and a, a wedge, right? It's, it's like a lever. It can get yeah. you those things. But right. without the agency, you can't get those things because you got no lever. So I completely agree with right. you. Agency is the foundation that allows you to have love, that allows you to have a true understanding of your relation to others, your relationality in the world and all of that. You're absolutely right about that. So it's not that that's a low bar, but it's kind of that's table stakes. And so, yes, right. if the insects get it, great. Right. I, I am convinced. <laughs> I am convinced that at the, as we exit this decade of the, into the 2030s, that an, a, a range of animals, including feedstock animals, will start to have agency because they will have entered the financial system because they will be bearers of the digital cash that they are creating by their existence. <sighs> and so PETA may buy a whole field of milk cows, allow them to earn their own money off their milk, and then allow them to use that money as they spend it, right? That's where this is going. So this is, and then there's this idea, well, does a cow have agency? Well, a cow has friends. We know that now because we're tracking them really <laughs> well, right? We know cows have friends. We know that when cows are allowed to milk themselves, they milk themselves a lot more than twice a day and they're much happier. <laughs> Mm. All right. So so so, yes, we have this idea that agency is granted to more than just human beings and that we will now enter into all these really interesting and almost rabbinical conversations around agency, not just in people, but where our needs intersect with the needs of other beings with agency. And maybe the big being of all, mm. you know, the, the collective being that maybe we're all some part of. I mean, I'm also interested, you know, I feel like you have tr traditionally been more comfortable navigating these spaces than I am, partly because, and I'm not, I'm not think I'm revealing anything bad here, partly because of, I saw you once do, you demonstrated like a Wiccan ritual mm -hmm. when we did this workshop at Omega with like, I think it was like Grant Morrison and Eric Davis. I mean, it was like really interesting people. And when you did this Wiccan ritual, there was like directions. You like had this big stick thing or a, a leaf thing and you were like, there's north, there's east, there's west, there's south. Yeah. And you were talking about kind of familiars and totems. And when I was listening to it at the time, it reminded me of um, what it's like to to, to travel through a new shopping mall. Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah. And it's like, okay, where are the anchor stores? Okay, yeah. there's Macy's on the north end, J.C. Penney's on the south end. There's Sears, the oh, Sears over is closed, here. sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know what I mean? So yeah. to me, I know that's a very primitive way of understanding it, but it seemed like that you were developing over time almost a, a universal navigation system that helps you somehow orient in these kind of spaces that then get me really freaked out because I don't have I don't have that that way of 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 sort of mapping out where I am well but you the thing is you and to turn this around you also map out by the human heart quite well right in a way that makes your insights I think particularly clear and particularly human right I, I, the, right. The, the ways that I was taught were that yeah these are 
handholds. And part of that comes from the background in virtual reality, because remember, virtual reality with nothing in it is just unformed space. And so the first thing you need to do is to start to put forms into that space that help you place yourself. And I mean that in the in the true sense of yourself, yourselfness in it. Right. Right. And because of the way my magical education was delivered, the boundary between what constituted the created space of virtual reality and the created space of the magical world was like, ah, okay, yeah, they're kind of the same thing, kids. So you can right. use the same technique across them. And this is that the whole idea of techno-paganism, which then Eric Davis wrote about quite a bit. You know, it comes from that idea that looking into the technology, what we started to understand is that it is a mirror. Right. right. It's why people who had done psychedelics were so adept at it, too, because they had to navigate these realms. Yeah. 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 And so it's and, and the question is today whether so much of this is prepackaged to deliver a particular kind of narrative. Right. Or to shape you, to give you the particular dopamine squirts at the particular moment so you don't look too hard behind the mirror itself. That, again, this is where it comes back into that whole entire conversation of agency, which is if I'm saying, well, this is north, this is south, this is east, this is west. This is so that we can share a definition of how things work. Whereas if you are unconsciously getting the dopamine squirt because you're looking at this ad or whatever it might be, and that's not being revealed to you, then you're having the spell cast on you rather than co-creating it. Right. Back to the, I mean, it's a, it's a more advanced way of understanding this programmer be programmed idea. It's like, if you're not participating, and again, with agency in in the, the understanding of your terrain, then, yeah. then it's being imposed on you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And for people who are young and people who are new, that's okay. As long as, as, long as you uh, trust, trust the people who yeah. are doing it. But I do not, and I <laughs> can't bring myself at the, after 60 years of experience to trust <laughs> these people. Yeah. You've met not, these people, Doug. You've yeah. met these people. So, yeah. <laughs> right. And just because they've taken ayahuasca doesn't make them any more trustworthy, it turns out. No, 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 exactly. exactly. <laughs> Against all logic and sense, you're absolutely right. Uh, um, and, and, and again, you know, just yeah, because people yeah. have had the, the, the ayahuasca experience doesn't make them then uh, all of a sudden, you know, benevolent hosts of cyberspace. No. There's that there's that poem by Rilke where he sees the ancient Greek statue, right? And it, it's, it's all in German. But the thing is, at the end of it, that there's something about viewing the statue that his last line is, you must change your life. That there's something about the darshan, the experience of that. And that's, of course, what we would have expected people to have around that psychedelic experience. Because a lot of people in the 60s and in the 70s did, but those were also already people who were probably predisposed to going, wait a minute, I actually can change. I can change everything. And I feel as though coming to it, and this is, again, this is the difference between, say, someone like a Gordon, well, not even a Gordon Wasson, but a McKenna who's going deep into the jungle to do something versus a, an ayahuasca tourist who flies into Manaus, you know, and goes, finds the local shaman and go, goes, has the tour. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that, Right. I guess that the question is, are you going to be open for the range of 
responses. And I remember very early in this, talking to someone who had just been to a ritual and someone who had been at the ritual said to him afterward, I was expecting a strong experience. I didn't expect to die. Mm. Right. Beautiful. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And you can tell, okay, that is someone who's had an experience that has transformed their lives. Yeah. You know, and it comes back to that idea of being able to die in the change. Right. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, you look at, say, the way psychedelics are now being commercialized and they're looking for ways to, you know, create micro doses so that you can, you know, uh, charge people every day for this thing that would otherwise be inexpensive and let people have some of the benefits without the deep change involved. And, uh, you know, which for people who have certain kinds of persistent depression. Right. So microdosing LSD therapy. I mean, and. Um, the therapy that with uh, ketamine is life changing for these people because they are yeah. they're not they're resistant to all other drugs. So for right, those and people, I'll buy that. Yeah. It is absolutely life changing. Yeah, yeah, alcoholics and bulimics they've had you know great success. But when I look at that, the, the sort of the commercialization of the psychedelic yeah. space, yeah, it reminds me of the commercialization of the internet, or yeah. as you just wrote in this great piece, uh, the commercialization of the AR space, you know, that there's this, there's this promise, there's this light, there's this possibility that happens at the beginning. And, you know, I've been around for enough turns of the cycle that each time it's like the icky people figure out how to titrate it in such a way that you get, you know, all of the utilitarian effect, but none of the spiritual effect. Well, and again, uh, the spiritual effect, because it's making the, it's making that demand to, to change and die, it doesn't certainly doesn't fit into a capitalist framework, right? No. Like that. You don't want to deliver people a death experience. Um, <laughs> uh, no. But and even so, the net did that. Even the beginning, the idea of the net, that we would all be connected to everybody else and part of the guy in mind, that's scary because it's like, well, my, 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 my ego and my property and myself and the thing. No, no, join the rave. It's going to be great. You know, <laughs> they don't want to come along on that ride. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the interesting thing about this, and it, it goes back to this, the, 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 the bigger loop about QAnon and all of this, is that, in fact, the, the net worked exactly as planned. What we didn't understand, and this comes back to it, even the people who were building the network did not understand the network effects of the things they were building, right? They didn't right. understand the ability you – know, the DisinfoCon, where the, the slogan was, in 2000, find the others, which seems right. quite a revolutionary phrase back in 2000. And now it's kind of like, well, yeah, that's how, that's how QAnon works, right? Mm. Yeah, you, you, know, you find the others, you quote unquote, do your own research, you leave inside this bubble, this LARP, as you call it, um, of, of that, which is enabled by the fact that we have a global network of people sharing, if not their consciousness, certainly what's on their minds from moment to moment. Right. But they're not doing it as play. <sighs> well, I, well, it's playful. But they're taking it, they're taking world, it, right? Yeah. They're taking it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think you and I agree. They're, they're, they're taking things seriously that they should be taking less seriously and taking things less seriously that maybe they should be taking seriously. But again, it's very hard for either of us to sit in 
judgment around that. Right. That's the dangerous thing. But at the same time, you want people to have as many options in their opportunities to change as possible. Right. Right. And that's that that's the sticky point is that people get stuck in these things and then can't change because it's like flypaper. It's like flypaper to the soul. And this is the thing that we didn't kind of understand that the net would create was this kind of soul flypaper. And, you know, that's not just I mean, it's QAnon in a particularly visible version, but it's Facebook for two billion regular daily users. Right. It's funny. I remember way back when you sent me um, you sent me two DVDs, one the Greatest movie of all time, South Park. Um, <laughs> and along with it, you also sent me um, the DVD of Existence. Ah, I love that film. Which is yeah. interesting because it's sort of what you're talking about. That, you know, that you can make a video game that's so good that you don't realize you're in it anymore. And you think you've taken off your goggles, but you're in the freaking game. <laughs> exactly. And, you're, and, you're, and, and someone's, someone's got a gun pointed at you and go, are we still in the game? Right. It's like like that's I mean, that's Pizzagate. That is Pizzagate right there. Right. Right. And you go and it's like, no, there's no basement. There is no basement. <laughs> exactly. Like, what do you mean? There, there was a basement. There was a basement here just yesterday. <laughs> so you weren't really here just yesterday. You were in the game. <sighs> so uh, and uh, this is, you know, uh, and again, that comes back to McLuhan's idea that artists are always the early warning systems of culture, right? Mm. That, you know, and, and and in particular, Cronenberg between, uh, you know, Vi Videodrome, which is arguably my favorite film, it's certainly in my top five favorite films, and uh, Existence sort of frame an entire sort of way of understanding our relationship to media, our relationship to agency. Uh, and it's, you know, because it's Cronenberg paranoid, but also quite brilliant in the way that it just shows things. Yeah. No, there have been these, I mean, these these uh, geniuses like them, uh, him and, and, and Paddy Chayefsky, and oh, David yeah. Lynch, you know, they've, they've shown us, you know, where things are going one way or another, and, yeah. and Kubrick for that matter. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's this, this sort of Mobius strip, and, and that's, Gotta be. I mean, it's what attracted us to the net at the beginning and to psychedelics and to fantasy and to the science fiction was this sense that we can somehow get our hands on the the dashboard, you know, the control panel of this whole thing. It yeah. feels almost like we can reach in and and, and, and grab it, you know? What I mean? Yeah, and and I mean, I think the thing that I, I've learned over the years is that that the, that control panel on those dashboards are located internally, right? That you you, right. you 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 change yourself. Now that doesn't mean that you can't change the world, but you change the world from a position of having changed yourself, right? Which is and it's weird because stoicism is coming back into vogue now. I don't know if you've seen. There's been yep. a lot of books around that, and this yep. idea. This is sort of an idea that is some sense original with with stoicism that you change yourself to to not so much to the needs of the world but you change yourself and then you have the place to be in the world right it's a bit like the serenity prayer you know it's like rather than changing everything out there what you know how do i accept what i can't change and then change the way i metabolize it yeah yeah, exactly. And and with, with the Serenity Player, because that's part of the 12-step program, there are specific exercises, right? Because the 12 steps are effect right. effectively spiritual exercises that someone in recovery does in order to create 
the feedback loops that accelerate that change process for them. And this is right. the brilliance of, of, of AA, right, of the 12 steps mm -hmm. is that it is literally, you know, the first really strong modern candidate for a program of self-help, as we all know, because mm -hmm. the 12 steps produce those kinds of loops in a person and having the sponsor, the mentor guiding you through their own experience of what it was like when they were doing these. So it's, there's a lot. And, and again, this comes back to that idea is that, you know, we don't actually lack for good ideas on how to increase agency and how to get people out of the traps. Maybe there needs to be a 12-step program for QAnon. I don't know, right? Of a sort, or for and for a lot of things, for capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look at we we have gone the span of our lives because we're almost the same age. The span of our yeah. lives we have gone from oh, there's this lovely Earth Day, everything's going to be nice, you're going to stop polluting the planet. To oh my God, we have set the planet on fire, right? You know, this time last year. My country was fully on fire. I couldn't breathe the air outside, right? Not because there was a pandemic, but because the country was on fire. And this year, it's quite rainy because the weather patterns have changed. And it's not so much that people have gone back to sleep because we haven't. But we're like, okay, there's all this capital that's arrayed against making any changes. And yet we can already see this is happening. And so there's a sense of growing. It's a combination of frustration around this and a search for for a way to be able to lull capital to sleep long enough to be able to do the surgery on it that is needed. <laughs> right. Right? right. Like, how do we find that anesthetic for right. capital to calm it down enough to go, yeah, if you don't have this operation, you'll die. I I'm wondering then, is it still possible for us to engage in kind of globally civilization-wide curative practices, or are we in more of a, a palliative care situation at this point? This is a question that I don't think anyone... I mean, there's a whole set of people who believe the only thing we can do around the climate crisis, right, is remediation, right, just making it less bad. And we don't really know whether that's the case or not. We do know that we need to change our practices no matter what. And it right. feels as though that's the way we have to lead. And changing our practices may include remediation. We don't we honestly don't know. But it, in, it includes being confronted by this to come back to where we started this resistance to change, this belief that change is death, that if we change anything that we're doing in the way that we're doing it without really understanding that not changing is fatal. And so right. we're stuck on the true horns of a dilemma there. Right. And change as death is at least, you know, it's just exhaling and inhaling, you know, that that if you if you do death through change, you know, it may not be so linear and final. It may be more circular. It may be a renewal rather than just, uh, uh, you know, terminal. Yeah. And again, this is where you get into then competing notions of time. When time is linear, it stops. When time is circular, it recurs. Right. Right. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> on that note. Okay, Mark. Well, I love you. All right. Very much love to you and happy solstice. You've been on Team Human, 
Our guest today was Mark Pesci, author of the new wonderful book, Augmented Reality. You can find out more about him at markpesci.com. You can find out more about Mark and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Team Human was produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. <laughs>